This ethics podcast is dedicated in loving memory and Le'ilu Nishmat, Miriam Bat Ashraf. May her soul be elevated in heaven. And of course, our email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. We are still in the sixth Mishnah of the sixth chapter. We've been here for a while because these are the 48 ways to wisdom. Our sages of blessed memory codified for us 48 different ways to achieve wisdom. And these are the people that we should listen to for advice in this area. They are experts. And we're now up to way number 26. And that is to know your place. To know your place. And those words don't obviously mean something to us. What does it mean to know your place? And what does it help? How does it help towards the achieving of wisdom? Uh, Of course, knowing your place seems to imply not your physical place, but maybe your standing, maybe your position, maybe the role you have to play. Uh, Your place means your position in society, your role in society, the greatness that is destined for you. But it's not immediately clear what this means. Now, there are some examples of this idea of knowing your place that are featured in the literature. For example, in chapter 19 of the book of Exodus, we read about the run-up to Sinai. The Jewish people are surrounding the mountain, and they're told that they're going to experience something very sensational, very dramatic, very miraculous in a couple of days. They're told that they need to prepare, and repeatedly they're told that they must not get too close to the mountain. If they do, they will die. Human and animal will die. And there's this emphasis uh, that Moshe is warned and the nation's warned again and again not to get too close. And they actually erect a barrier and everyone's told exactly where they need to be. And the verse tells us, chapter 19, verse 22, that even the Kohanim, meaning the priests, who are the ones who approach God, they're the ones who are typically a bit closer than everyone else. They too shall sanctify themselves. So it's not clear what this means. And Rashi tells us that in the context of distancing oneself from the place where they cannot go, even the Kohanim who typically do go a lot closer, these are the ones who, you know, go into the tabernacle, they go into the temple, and they bring sacrifices. Of course, the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, and they may think that at Sinai, this revelation, maybe they too can approach closer than everyone else. And they must be sanctified. And they have to stand where they're supposed to stand, on their post, and not too close. So this is the first example that we see in Scripture about this idea of knowing your place. The Kohanim and the elders and the sons of Aaron and the prophets, and Moshe, and the rest of the nation, everyone was given a certain place, a designated location where they are supposed to be. And you may want more. You may think you deserve more. You may think that it's okay if you come closer. And God says, no, even the the priests, who typically go closer than most, they should sanctify themselves. They should embrace the holiness that comes with knowing your place. 
standing on your post and not getting too close. So this is the first example that we see in the literature about this idea of knowing your place. Everyone has a place. Everyone has a designated location. And if you strive to get more, if you strive to overshoot your location, it can be very dangerous. But if you stand on your post and you understand where you're supposed to be and you embrace the position that you were placed in, that is holiness. The priests should be sanctified. That is holiness. Holiness is to know exactly where you're supposed to be, not to overshoot it. This is the first idea we're going to see, and we'll try to make it more practical in just a bit. We don't strive to achieve things that are out of our place. We believe that we're all destined for great things. After all, as bearers of a soul, we're not placed here to be mediocre, to be generic, and to just live the way animals live. Animals, they're born, they sustain their body, and they die, and that's really it. They don't leave a lasting impact. Humans change everything. We have the ability to effectuate change. We could change the world. We could elevate the world, and God forbid we can cause the world to regress and to spiral in a negative way. And of course, we have the tools to achieve both of those ends. And those tools, the greatness that we have within us, it's within us. It's not without of us. And the first idea that we see here, again, this is just working into this notion a bit slowly, just from what we know from Scripture. Only within your realm, only in your place, only on your position, only on your post, only there will you find your greatness. Outside of it, you will not find your greatness. And holiness is to stay far away if you're supposed to be far away. Relatively so. Idea number one. Idea number two, we find in the Sanhedrin. Of course, we are familiar with the notion of a Sanhedrin. It's the Supreme Court of the Jewish people. It's 71 elders. This is a body. This is an institution that was founded by Moshe and endured for 1,700 years. And the Talmud tells us that the Sanhedrin, it wasn't just 71 sages. There were more sages. There were three benches of associates that participated in the proceedings. But not only that, every person amongst the great Sanhedrin and amongst the three benches of associates, each comprised of 23 elders, So you do the math, 71 elders on the Great Sanhedrin, and then three benches of associates, each comprised of 23 elders. So that's 71 plus 69. It's 140 sages. And every single person, the Mishnah tells us, Sanhedrin 37a, every single one of them knew their place. There were 140 seats, and everyone knew exactly where they sat. And the reason for this is because there was a hierarchy. There was a rank. There was a seniority system. In the Great Sanhedrin, if you're part of the Great Sanhedrin, you're part of the 71, you're not part of those other three benches. 
And even amongst that 71, it was ranked from the highest, most senior member to the lowest, most junior member, 1 through 71. And even amongst those three benches of associates, each comprised of 23 elders, there was bench number one, the triple A's, if you will, and number two and number three. And even amongst the 23, it went from most junior to most senior. And actually, the way the way that it was done is that if one of the jurists retired or passed away, and they vacate their spot, obviously, everyone below them moves up one notch. So suppose you were number 17 on the middle bench of the three benches of associates, and a member of the Great Sanhedrin passes, you move up You move up to number 16. And number one of your bench moves up to the higher bench. And number one of the highest bench of associates moves to number 71 of the higher court. And there's an emphasis here. Everyone knew their place, even amongst the great sages. There's this emphasis. Everyone has to know exactly where they belong. You know, it doesn't always work like that in every, in every domain. Like the, the current chief justice of the Supreme Court, he was nominated to be an associate justice. And then during the proceedings, William Rehnquist died and the president withdrew his nomination to be an associate justice and resubmitted his nomination to be a chief justice. So he went from zero to number one. It doesn't work like that. When someone becomes a member of Sanhedrin, you start off as the lowest of 140 and you slowly make your way up the lowest level and the next level and then the third level of associates and then the lowest level of the great Sanhedrin and so on. And then what they do is they find the greatest sage in the entire land that's not part of these 140 and they are nominated to be the lowest level of the lowest bench. So again, we see this emphasis amongst the sages that everyone has to know their place. Everyone has to know where they belong. Everyone has to understand exactly where their position is. Now, let's try to bring this idea a little bit closer to us. You know, you know, the sign of revelation, uh, that's in the past. The Sanhedrin, it's not an office that we imagine any of us will be holding, at least right now. So how do we take this idea of knowing your place and bring it a little bit closer to our understanding? So I want to share maybe three different ways to view this. You have to know your place. Where's your place? So I would say, well, it's in the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. That's where I am right now. That's my place. Maybe in the summer, you go visit family. Maybe you go take a vacation to Iceland. And that's your place. But is that really your place? Is that your permanent place? Right now, you're here on this earth. Of course, we have some people orbiting in space, but they're still close enough. 
But this, of course, is not your permanent place. Where will you be in a hundred years from now? In all likelihood, you'll be in a very different place. And we're told earlier in our book, you have to know where you're going. That's also part of your realm. And where you're going, if you're lucky, it's still a place of worms and maggots. Now, of course, that's where your body is going. Your soul, that too, has a destination. And therefore, when we ask the question of what's your place, we have to, we have to kind of break it down and say, well, right now, I'm a body and soul merged together. And I'm, I'm in this place. I'm in terra firma. I'm in planet Earth. I'm in this physical world. But in the future, I'll be in a different place. The body and soul will separate. The body will go to its place and the soul will go to its place. And is that my place or is this my place? We learned. This is an idea that we see again and again. Maybe it's the most important idea. That our objective in this place is to prepare for the next place. And which place is really our place? Our real place is not here, it's there. This world is compared to a corridor. You're walking towards a ballroom. This world is a preparation. It's a time to get ready, but it's not the final place. So if you have to know your place, no one thinks that their place is the journey. It's the destination. If you travel across the country and you happen to drive through Mississippi and Alabama and Tennessee and Kentucky and Ohio and Michigan and New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maryland, both Virginias, No one says, this is my place. You don't become a West Virginian for a few hours as you drive through the 81. It's not your place. Your place is where you actually live. So one idea here is that we have to really think about what is our place in this world, which is traveling. Our real place is where we actually settle down. And you have to not just be aware of that, you have to know it. You have to live by it. If you know your place, and that is that your body is placed in one location where it comes from, and your soul is placed in another location where it comes from, if you really know that, that will lead you towards wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is investing in your soul. Wisdom is investing in your real place, in the place that will outlast the temporary place. It's investing in the permanent place. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is a choice to prioritize a permanent life over a temporary one. And I'll tell you a secret. When you die, I hope this is not surprising (laughs) to you. I have some surprising news, maybe a bit distressing. You will die. That is the destiny of all mankind. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. 
What will you take with you? What's actually yours? What do you bring with you to your place? So, of course, mitzvos, any mitzvah that you do, any righteous deed that you do, any kind thing that you do, anytime you're listening to God, that's a merit that you take with you forever. But, of course, what you study, what you amass in your brain, what you invest in your soul, that you take with you as well. The Talmud tells us that the first question that someone is asked before the heavenly tribunal is about Torah study. Now, it is true, before you jump on me, it is true, there are two teachings in the Talmud, one in the book of Shabbos, page 31a, and one in the book of Sanhedrin, page 7a, that give different accounts as to the interrogation that the heavenly tribunal gives to people. And that's a question that's resolved by the commentators. But in one of them, Sanhedrin 7a, it says that the first question relates to Torah study. Why is that relevant? Because that really determines everything about your life in that place. The Talmud of the book of Bava Basra, on page 10b, it's a very interesting Talmud. It's one we spoke about many times. But when we speak about it, we tend to focus on the first half of the narrative, not the continuation. It's the first documented instance of a near-death experience. One of the great sages, he was ill, he died, and was resuscitated. And they asked him, what do you see? And he said, I saw an upside-down world. The lofty ones are lowly, and the lowly ones are lofty. Everything was opposite in that world. And the satyrs told him, no, no, you didn't see an upside-down world. You saw a clear world. Our world is upside-down. And the narrative continues. He says, I also heard something. When I was there, I heard an announcement. What was the announcement that he heard in heaven during his brief stay there? I heard that they were saying, praiseworthy is he who comes to this place. And his study and his Torah and his Talmud is in his hands. Praiseworthy is he who comes here, arrives here, and his study is in his hands. So what that means, of course, it's widely discussed. The precise words of the of the narrative of this testimony it's not just randomly said of course but what we are told is that when someone does arrive at that world at their permanent place they can bring with them their study the test it's an open book you could bring your study you could bring your notes you could bring your accomplishments what you study here you bring with you there. And the more someone studies, the greater the scope of their spiritual life for eternity is. And thus, our study in this world, it's almost the expansion of our scope of our spiritual life in the next world. 
if you know your place and you realize what's the permanent place and what's just the ephemeral temporary one, well, you made sure that you're ready for what it's like in that place. Good news and bad news. Death is quite liberating. And that can be very bad news. Because everything that you wanted so much, you craved so much, you desired so much in this world, is all available for you. Completely at your fingertips. And you have zero interest in it. Zero. It does not excite you one little bit. Nothing, 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 physical, material, carnal, excites you anymore. And it's all there. It's all available. You could be anywhere, do anything. And you have no interest. The only things that you want, we're told, the only things that matter are things that excite the soul. And the soul is liberated. And the things that were inhibiting the soul in this world are removed. But if you have nothing to dig into, you're not bringing anything with you, the soul is free to do whatever it wants, but it can't. And thus, we see an emphasis to prepare for your journey, to make sure you stockpile, you fill up your pockets and your satchel with things that matter to the soul. Because otherwise, you are out of luck. Now, I will say, Torah study done in someone's merit can accrue to them after they pass. Which is why, of course, there's a great emphasis to make sure that people do mitzvos and study Torah in the merit of the deceased. Which is why there's a wide-held tradition to donate money in the merit of the deceased. The Chavetz Chaim writes that people should designate some portion of their estate to Torah study in the merit of their soul. And he advises someone, don't give it to your children. Don't expect your children to do it. All they care about is your inheritance. Give it to a third party, place it in escrow, make sure it's targeted for the benefit of your soul after you pass. So there is a little bit of a way to help the soul after it's left this temporary place. But of course, ideally, we should stockpile as much merit for the soul ourselves. Our own Torah study is indispensable. And you have to know your place. And if you do know your place, and you realize where you will be relatively soon, that will reinforce the imperative to study and to boost the viability of your soul in the world of souls. So idea number one, know your place, is to know where you're going. Know that you're here temporary, and your real place is permanent. And what's that like? And that knowledge should inspire you to make a great effort, to make a great emphasis, to make a priority, to study, and to invest in the soul. So that's idea number one of knowing your place. Idea number two is the notion of self-awareness. You got to know yourself. You got to know your qualities. You have to know your flaws. You have to have an accurate assessment of who you are. 
A great many people are delusional. Some think they are much greater than they actually are. I will say I have spoken to people who believe, who are fairly convinced, they're Messiah. There's definitely a class of people who think that they are much better than they actually are. They're more refined, they're more developed, they're more accomplished, they're more intelligent. Of course, they're of course, more handsome than they actually are. That's one form of delusion. They don't know their place. They think they're Moshe, who can ascend the mountain when they're not. But of course, the delusion goes the other way around as well. There are people who chronically undervalue themselves, undervalue their accomplishments, undervalue their successes, view themselves as being less than they actually are. And they have low self-esteem, and they, they don't think that they're capable, and they feel inept, and they feel inadequate. And who knows where it comes from? Maybe someone said to them something as a youth. Maybe they had some early struggles in 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 academic success. They're bad at taking tests. They had some failure, and we all know that the sting of failure lingers. And these people have the opposite delusion. They feel inadequate and they're incapable and they're not so smart, they're not so sharp, they can't really retain so much, they're not so intelligent. Some people think that they're just truly inept and there's nothing they can do about that. And this is another version of not knowing your place. We see people, I know people, everyone knows people like this, who actually are endowed with great ability. But just, they, they feel like an imposter. They, they don't realize it. And therefore, they're overly diffident. And they're resistant. And they're reluctant to take on any big role. And that's another version of not knowing your place. To know your place means to know your qualities. You have to know your abilities. You have to know what makes you special. Of course, it also means you have to know your flaws. Both of them are important. The great Rabbi Israel Salanter said, without knowledge of your flaws, you don't know what you need to work on. You don't know your enemy. But without knowledge of your strengths, you don't know what you have to work with. You don't know what tools you have. You don't know what ammunition you have. The great... Rabbi Rucham used to say, Woe to he who doesn't know his flaws. But double woe to he who does not know his strengths. You have to know your flaws, but you better know your strengths as well. And people may justify their low self-esteem by saying, Well, no, it's humility. I'm just humble. I'm like Abraham. I'm like Moshe. I'm like Aaron. I'm like David. They all said, we're nothing. We're like a worm. That's not humility. It's faux humility. It's false humility. It's counterfeit humility. If God gives you a gift and you reject it, you deny it, 
It's an insult to God. It's not humility to say, I don't have what you actually do have. You have to know your place. And if you realize the qualities that you have and the abilities that you have, you'll also know the great responsibilities that you have. Sometimes people are just scared and sometimes they just don't want responsibility. Therefore, they deny the abilities that they actually have. There was a great hero of Jewish history who may have had this blunder, may have made this, made this mistake. And that's Saul. And Saul was criticized by Samuel for being overly humble. You think you're small in your eyes, but no, you're the king. You have to embrace that role. You have to know your place. He didn't eradicate Amalek. And he says, oh, well, the people did it. As if he was helpless to stop him. No, no, no. You're not helpless. You're the king. Know your place. Take up, take a stick and start smacking them until they listen to you. That was Saul's flaw. And that's why he lost the monarchy. That's what scripture tells us. People have a tendency to not believe in themselves and they have to know you must believe in yourself. You must know your place. And remember, the Almighty believes in you as evidenced by the fact that you're here. And if you're listening to this, you know that he believes in you. And if he believes in you, obviously there's something to believe in. And you have to believe in yourself as well. And you have to aspire to great things. And you have to realize that you can do more than you are currently doing. I think I could say with confidence, Every single person who is hearing my voice is capable of doing more, of doing greater, of thinking bigger, of accomplishing more than they are currently doing. I think I could say that with confidence. And of course, you got to approach this smartly. They say you should aim from one notch higher. Think of what your maximum is. Eh, Try to aim for one notch higher. You will be surprised. You will discover some abilities you didn't know you had. If you aim for two notches, maybe you are overstepping. That's not, not your place. Know your place. Your place is a little bit more than you think you can do. Maybe start with what, I think we have a lot of low-hanging fruit here. Probably start with what you think you can do. Know your place, know your responsibility. And once you are at max capacity, okay, now it's time to rev up the engines one notch more. And once you do that, one notch more. And one notch more, and one notch more, and one notch more. Before you know it, you're a different species than all the people around you. The standard pace, we're told, is for chumps. There's lots and lots and lots of chumps. And I would uh, argue it's no surprise, it's no coincidence that the great men of our history were shepherds. Because one of the realities, the sad realities of our world is that we compare ourselves to other people. And most people are decidedly 
mediocre. And if we use that as the barometer, well, we could be fairly good. We could be, you know, above the median. We could be in the 90th percentile without really breaking a sweat. If you are a shepherd, you have no other mediocre humans to uh, compare yourself to. And that's actually a great blessing. You haven't been trained about the low expectations of humanities. And that's a very good thing. So that's idea number two. Know your place. Know your qualities. Know your flaws. Know your abilities. Don't think you can do so, 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 so much more. Don't think you've already done so so much more. Realize that you still have a lot more to accomplish. But don't think that you're ineffectual, inept, inadequate, incapable. Don't buy that fiction either. It's not humility. It's not righteousness. The Almighty wants you to do great things. And you can do it. And the Aetherah says, no, you can't. And listening to that voice is existentially harmful. And finally, I want to suggest a third approach. And this is similar along these lines, but it has a different spin on it. And this is a very, very big theme that I think is not discussed often enough. And that's the idea of the individual responsibility placed upon every person. The Torah, we are told, the Talmud calculates, has 630 mitzvahs. And of course, you know, not everyone can fulfill all 613, but everyone's obligated in all 613, all Jews. And that covenant was forged at Sinai and was re-upped, of course, several times. But the Sinai Revelation is the beginning of this responsibility. You finish Sinai Revelation, and now you sign on the line that's dotted, and you you are obligated. As a Jew, you have to keep all 630 mitzvahs. But the sages tell us, and it's also, if you read the verses very, very carefully, you'll notice it in the verses. Sinai was not just a generic revelation. It was also an individualized experience. Meaning, not every individual experienced it the same. In fact, no two individuals experienced it the same. There were 600,000 individual experiences. And thus, we can say that there are really two types of Torah. Every Jew is obligated in two types of Torah. The general Torah that's universal, that is the same for everyone, 613. And if you were given at Sinai something different than everyone else, then that means that you have responsibility of Torah that's different than everyone else. There's a unique bit of Torah that has your name on it and no one else's. And this idea is featured in other places in the literature. For example, we're told that every 
one of the 600,000 root souls of the Jewish people, has a letter in the Torah. Because there are 600,000 letters in the Torah. That means that there's one letter that every Jew has that no one else has. It's, it's their individual Torah. And we're also told that a person's individual unique strengths and weaknesses are tailored towards giving them the chance, the opportunity, and also the framework to accomplish their unique Torah. There may be one particular area of life that a person, you know, has, you know, feels that it resonates with them. There's a part of Torah in which their heart desires. The whole world was created for you. There's one bit of responsibility that's only yours. And thus, if you want to have wisdom, and not just of the generic type, not just of the type that is the same for everyone, you want yours. You want to know your place. In the grand scheme of things, where's your place? Where's your place in the Torah? Where's that one letter that's yours? To know your place. And this, of course, changes everything because it's, it's a whole life's journey. It's a whole odyssey. It's a quest to find your place, to find your Torah, to find that one part of the responsibility of humanity that is on your shoulders and no one else's. And of course, it's, it's maddeningly difficult to try to find that place. How do you find your responsibility? How do you find your mission? But the pursuit of it, to know your place, that pursuit will bring you to great, great things. So just knowing that you have a place, knowing that amongst the great panoply of the universe and of the Torah, there's one place that's yours that's your portion in the Torah. Knowing that and making it your life's mission to find that and to exercise the responsibilities, to execute the responsibilities placed upon your shoulders, that leads to a very, very different sort of life. And perhaps that too has been hinted in the words of our sages, way number 26, to know your place with just a few words. Our sages, of course, are revealing so many layers, so many dimensions of insight and of wisdom. We're past the 50% mark of the 48 ways to wisdom. There's a lot more. But each one of these, each one, each one on its own, it's a whole universe. It's a whole world. I think if you listen to my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. Of course, I work for Torch. I'm back in the Torch Center. We spent the summer up north. Did a lot of driving. Would not recommend too much driving. Take an airplane instead. As much as you hate air travel, it's still better. But now we're back in the Torch Center. And please, God, we'll have a great year together. The email address is again, rabbiwalby at gmail.com.